0: I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick, sponsored by Philanthropic
1: Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, my guest is the Global Professional Services Executive, Beth Brooke. Beth serves on the boards of the New York Times Company, eHealth, both public companies, and Beta Bionics and Tricolor Holdings, both private companies, and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, as well as the Lehigh Valley Health System. She was the former global vice chair for public policy at Ernst & Young and was a member of the firm's global board. Beth oversaw public policy for the firm's operations in 150 countries and was the global sponsor of Ernst & Young's diversity and inclusion efforts. She has been named not once, not twice, not three times, but 11 times to the Forbes World's 100 Most Powerful Women's List and has been included in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame, if all that other stuff wasn't great enough. Beth, welcome to The Caring Economy.
0: Thanks, Toby. Glad to be with you.
1: So obviously you're a Hoosier. How does a a charming Hoosier like you find your way through such a stellar global career?
0: i'm I'm so grateful that I'm a Hoosier through and through. And I think you know values matter in business. And I was very blessed to to grow up in Indiana. And you know, just under understand the importance of kindness mm-hmm. and the importance of meeting people where they are. Grew up with a, a a great set of values which respected people for who they who they are and and to get to know them and then, you know, just understand that their views come from. Uh, who they are and where they are, and and that served me well around the world. Um, it, that never those values, those people never left me all over the world.
1: You know, I, I'm a Buckeye, born in Ohio, not not raised there too long, but mostly Midwestern in my upbringing, and I share similar values. I think, you know, people often say Midwesterners are nice, and I usually, as a communicator, I challenge them to pick a different adjective because nice can mean so much or mean nothing at all. But it's true, Midwesterners are just nice people
0: (laughs) Um, our default mechanism i think is to trust and and honestly that served me well i always i had to deal in especially in the last half of my career with a lot of people around the world a lot of different governments a lot of people who you know challenged what what we were doing and the way we did it and if you come from a a perspective of you know sort of trust but verify Mm -hmm. as the accounting world does um you know you trust people first meet them where they are and 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 that usually just serves you well.
1: Yeah. I want to come back to that meaning where you are, because I talk about a spectrum of caring in my work and similar sort of practice applies, but first give us a little bit more like the, the evolution. So you grew up in Indiana and went to school there and then eventually were you were called East or how did it all unfold?
0: Yeah. First, first nine years of my career in Indianapolis with Ernst & Young. And it was a great nine years. Be And, and again, things that, live with you forever. What I experienced in Indianapolis in those nine years was Ernst and Winnie at the time, we we were four times larger than any of our competitors. So we dominated that market. So if you were a client, if you were a company, you had to justify why you didn't use us um, because that was just the kind of brand presence we had. That was important. I learned the value of dominance, the value of a platform. But then I also had a magical nine years of, as a very young pup (laughs) and brand new into a career, Indianapolis was a a great city for public-private partnerships. Uh So the cooperation between the private sector and the the city leadership was, was really tight. So I was involved on all kinds of nonprofit boards, really skin in my knees as a young leader and learning from great really seasoned city leaders how to be a leader and being a sponge and taking all that in but we also we we the city uh, hosted the pan am games back then i was very involved with that and that is at the time when the private sector and the public sector banded together strategically to decide that indianapolis was going to become the the amateur sports capital of the world so i got to be part of watching a city affectionately referred to as Indiana, no place, you know, make a strategic decision to change its trajectory and become a Mecca for sports organizations. And we did. So that also stuck with me in my career, that leadership matters, Mm -hmm. strategic Mm -hmm. leadership and public private partnership, business and government working together. And and that theme never left me.
1: (laughs) Did you then get promoted and move out East or what happened? Yeah.
0: I got transferred to Washington DC to run our national insurance tax practice. I was running the the Midwest region insurance tax practice, got transferred to Washington to run the national practice. And that was explosive, Toby. I, for me personally and professionally, I grew up narrow, you know, kind of narrow insular in Indiana. When I got to Washington DC, I exploded. I loved that city professionally. I loved the fact that I think of Honestly, I think of New York as kind of the world of uh, finance. Um, and I think of D.C. as the world of ideas. You know, it was just nobody made any money. <laughs> Most people work uh, for the government. Absolutely. And everybody thought they were changing the world and so committed to it. And that resonated with my value system. So I loved it. And uh, personally, it, it really resonated with me.
1: Um, and I know we're skipping ahead a little bit. But then that, I guess, is how you made your way into the Treasury Department and the administration.
0: Yeah, 2 years in, I was really outspoken and well known for tax policy around managed care, which was a new emerging animal and it was wasn't being taxed correctly because nobody w- understood what it was. So anyway, I was attractive to the Clinton administration when they were going to reform healthcare in mm. 100 days. Right. <laughs> and so I was recruited to join that healthcare reform team and then within a couple of weeks I got asked to lead the White House effort, effort on super fund reform, which is the cleanup of toxic waste where Toxic waste I mean, wasn't getting cleaned up. Everybody was just suing everybody and saying, not my job, it wasn't illegal when we did it. So I got to lead a two-year effort to try to craft a compromise but and to get everybody that was involved, whether you were a polluter or an insurance company that didn't wanna cover it, to get everybody to agree to some degree of liability. Yeah. Uh, that would seem fair. So everybody would agree to the compromise, but would be marginally unhappy. That was my job. And I got it through all five committees. So, but once again, I'm dealing with Jack Welch at GE, Hank Greenberg at AIG, and I'm learning how an, an issue that is so important to a CEO, of how that CEO shows up in Washington, how they engage in an issue, a societal problem, toxic waste. I saw how government and business had to work together. In order to solve that societal problem, and I saw when they didn't work together very well, and most of the time they don't. So again, come back to this theme of my career of this need for government and business to work together in order to solve societal problems. And you know, to this day, we we don't do it very well.
1: Jack Welch, I mean, what a great guy to learn from. I don't, I didn't know him, but his wife Susie has has been on our show. And what he did through the years is it's textbook genius, I think. And then there's the jack welch institute so uh you did have success in the end if in terms of the health care in that the affordable care act came to be and i think people will argue but i think it is actually a wonderful addition to our society and sort of i guess you maybe had one step forward two step back but in the end it's moved in the right direction is that a is that a fair statement beth well it's an important
0: learning so to your point the aca eventually passes years later So my Superfund bill, I got it through all five committees, and it died on the floor of the House and the Senate with a Republican filibuster. Why? It had total bipartisan support. It was a great piece of legislation. Why did it die? Because they weren't going to give Clinton an environmental victory right before the 94 elections. It was politics. I remember the next day showing up at Treasury, getting called to the Secretary's office and having Secretary of the Treasury say, I hear you're down. I'm like, like, this was... (laughs) <laughs> this should have passed. And I didn't understand why. Politics. And um, he said, you know, every great piece of legislation dies 10 times, you know, it will pass someday, your fingerprints will be on it, but you won't be anywhere in sight. And and it was important learning with this long term view. And it's, I think, important for companies. in. in Long term value creation. It's trying to articulate your purpose for the long term, not just tied to the 90 day calendar, you know, the hamster wheel of 90 day quarterly earnings, but understanding how a company creates value for the long term. It it helped me in that moment of Mm -hmm. legislative failure to understand you have to take a long term view and good things do happen.
1: Yes, and, and that purpose, I mean, we both, I think, would say it's, it's a higher purpose, right? It's not something that changes from season to season. But how, how have you helped brands or individuals kind of define their purpose in, um, in advising them?
0: Well, I, you know, it's, it's I think for companies, it's, it starts very simply. Uh, and we did this at EY, which is for years, we described what we did. Mm-hmm quality and everything we do, we do all this great stuff, never answered the question why we do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the why, not the what. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think brands that get this right really start with, why do we do what we do? And it's what employees and customers today and investors increasingly want to know. And I think that that's been the gift of the pandemic, which it is was a tipping point for employees, customers, investors to find their voice about why do they engage with a brand? What, what is the brand? What's the why? Um, and you know, companies now not only have to answer it, they have to live it. And it has to not be a sideshow. It's not some CSR or even ESG. I mean, although they you can describe it in ESG metrics, but it is central and core to the strategy of a company.
1: Mm-hmm. It's in its DNA. It's an expression of that, an essence of that. Where did E and Y end up in their sort of purpose statement or their mission statement?
0: Building a better working world. And which at the time, <laughs> at the time, even the company that was working with us on it just said, you know, that's really aspirational. Like I don't <laughs> know if uh, you know, but it really got embedded in the DNA of are you are you building a better working world? How does that manifest itself? Well, give give you a good example. Right. You know, you have to accept clients every day, go through a process, you know, and, and it always came down to, can we do the work? Mm-hmm. Are we independent? Are we this? Are we that? Can we do the work? Yeah. When you look at it through the lens of whether you're building a better working world, you don't just ask whether you can do the work. You ask whether you should do the work
1: mm-hmm.
0: And and it's a different lens.
1: Yeah. And also, how do you do the work? You know, the way you do it certainly matters the way you treat your employees your clients the materials you use the impact on the environment so that definitely resonates with me your world traditionally was one that I think you know global management consultancy I think is really hard like you hustle you travel you work it's competitive you must have had some bumps and knocks along the way how did how did you succeed all those years I was an athlete, four-sport athlete. You know, In
0: high school, I played, obviously, you mentioned the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. I played basketball in college. I think being an athlete, really, and, and we actually at EY did this study late in my career. We did this study to look at women in the C-suite, so women who had made it to the highest levels of business. What we found was that 94% of them had played sports and over half had played at a university level. What's that tell you? I mean, That's virtually all. <laughs> and and it doesn't suggest causation, doesn't say a, a, if a young girl is an athlete, they're gonna, she's going to go on to be uh, very successful in business. What it does suggest though is causation, which is what it take, the answer to your question, it takes a lot for a woman to, to get all the way through the professional services, um, mm-hmm. difficult life and competitive. And But what an athlete gets built into their DNA is the recipe for success. Mm -hmm. It's it's a clear recipe for success. Mm -hmm. Focus, discipline, hard work. Losing is just feedback. Failure is not an option. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, and you see this in athletes, male and female in the work environment, that they want to be coached. They want to be coached hard. They want to improve. Losing is just feedback to them. They don't crawl up in a ball and go home. They they just like, tell me, tell me, I'll get better. I'll work. You know, I, they'll never go into a meeting unprepared. You don't go into a game just hoping you win. You actually try to, you know, be prepared and know everybody's view. So athletes are just wired differently. I think that was very impactful for me. Certainly early on, joining Ernst and Winnie in Indianapolis as a basketball player in Indiana, <laughs> I neutralized gender. <laughs> it, it gender did not matter. I had a leg up because I was a collegiate athlete. so
1: yeah, and you talked basketball. So yeah. Could you, though, compare and contrast perhaps, your observations of being a woman in that space versus your male counterparts? If you looked at other women's experiences or other men's experiences, what's it been like, and are we better off now?
0: We, I would say after I left Indiana and DC and then for the rest of my career, I would I would describe it as a little bit lonely. As a woman, like you just you're you're well aware that there are just natural human networks among people that are alike. So in a profession that was dominated by men, you know, you were naturally excluded from those very normal human networks. And it's not that they were doing anything necessarily necessarily. Uh, malicious, it, it's human nature to affiliate with people like you. And so I would just say it, it felt very lonely. And I kind of had a double whammy, you know, late in my career, I came out as gay, but but I came to grips that, with the fact that I was gay from my early 30s, When actually when I moved to Washington. And so from my early 30s on, even though I remained closeted for 20 more years, you know, what not only was I excluded from those natural networks of men, I was I was somewhat self-excluded from the natural networks of women. I I just wasn't having a similar life experience in any way. So I I remember the first women's conference we had at EY first one, it was just when I'd come back from the government. And I remember just never feeling so alone. Like they're talking, they're talking about things and I'm like, not my world. Yeah. just not my world.
1: You're between two worlds in a sense. Yeah, so it was pretty lonely. Could you can compare and contrast, you think, your experience then to, say, um, that of perhaps Black BIPOC professionals today or disabled folks or, or veterans? It seems to me that in the LGBT community, we've come a long way, the LGBTQ community, we've come a long way. We still have our work to do. We have to stay vigilant but i think we're a little bit less marginalized today than maybe trans or black professionals and i wonder if that's if you share that sentiment and how we help make sure that their experience is better i do share that sentiment
0: and everything you know just needs focus I, but i do remember when i came out and i'd been a longstanding attendee at davos the world economic mm-hmm. forum but now, now I'm out, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so you know, at, at this particular World Economic Forum meeting in, in Davos, I'm thinking, I wonder, I wonder who the other LGBT yeah. executive <laughs> global world leaders are. I wonder. Yeah. So I go, you know, I kind of try to find them. There were six of us, six mm-hmm. out of all the world leaders there. You know, however many thousand, you know, twenty five hundred people there, six, and we worked behind the scenes with the World Economic Forum for six years. Uh to get Uh lgbtq issues onto the main stage and kind of into Uh the mainstream within the world economic forum six years six of us who were you know at the most senior ranks of the companies there six corporations multinationals working together behind the scenes i remember vice president when he was vice president biden uh coming to davos one year he met with the six of us privately and he said thank you for what you're doing you as multinational companies can change the world on this issue in ways the government, including the US government, cannot. And he implored us to keep doing what we were doing behind the scenes. And and this this is, I believe this to my core, this is the power of the private sector. Right. And we believe this as six companies is that you can we can control what goes on within our four walls. In the 155 countries that EY was in, we can control what goes on within our four walls, our values, our policies, the way we respect and treat people, create allies for the LGBT community. When our employees, no matter where they are in the world, in those four walls, go home at night into their communities, they carry that with them. And then they come back in the morning, they go home at night, they come back in the morning. And that ebb and flow, taking a long-term view over time, I know changes a country's culture and ultimately a country's law that, you know, that's the power. That's the power of the multinational.
1: Absolutely. I, my day job is head of communications at the British consulate. And a few weeks ago, we had Lord Herbert in the government is, was doing to a uh, called safe to be me. And it was an LGBT conference convening 160 nations from around the world, the first ever of the scale. And we had a, a roundtable lunch with about 12 executives, actually, including one of your Ernst Young colleagues, or my colleagues uh, on the DE&I front. But IBM was there and just major corporations. And they all said the same thing. You know, like the business roundtables is very important for them because that's where the CEOs get together and they can share, collaborate. And everyone agreed hand down, hands down from Nick Herbert to the guests and myself. Business has the biggest platform for change. It's got the levers, the bench strength, the finances, the savoir faire to do it, right? You can't just do blanket across the world. You find ways in a matrixed organization, as I've done at Amex or New York Times Company or Christie's, to make it work locally, but still be consistent with the broader vision and commitments of the brand. So... Kudos to you. Ladies and gentlemen, again today, I'm thrilled to have Beth Brooke with us. She is a global professional services executive. We've talked a lot about e y today, but Beth, let's talk a little bit about your side hustles, your hobbies, and your board work and other things. You, why don't we start with the board work first? Because I was public relations at the New York Times for five years, and I know you're on the board there. Yesterday, they just announced a new editor-in-chief. Tell us about what your board work is like and how it fulfills you.
0: I'm very purpose-driven and 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 so when I left, when I retired from EY and kind of going into this you know, next chapter of life, you know, I lost an enormous platform at EY to, to make change around the world. So I've been very focused on what's that platform going to look like? What can I create? Not recreate that, but what can I create in order to make a difference every day uh, on things that matter to me? And that's what I'm driven by so you take the new york times i mean what an important role the new york times plays in society around trust polarization of trust in media you know the, the new york times plays an incredible role mm-hmm. in the telling of truth and understanding from its readers that of what what truth looks like that matters depending on your point of view of the world mm-hmm. so how do you develop trust how do you create and and sustain that that trust in that brand, an incredibly important time, I think. So, you know, so iconic in that sense. And I just, you know, Toby, I, I view each of my companies that way. You, you named them. And I, I'm, I only serve on a board if I really align with the purpose and the mission. You mentioned Tricolore holdings. I mean, it's not a real sexy business. We sell used cars and we finance them. What's really fascinating to me about the business is that our customer base is entirely Hispanic and over half are undocumented immigrants. These are people where if they don't have a car, they won't have a job. So we have to get them a car. If they go to any normal car dealership, they're going to get charged an interest rate and be required to put a down payment down. That is outrageous. We've learned over the years how to underwrite that population what are the behavioral characteristics that actually make them good risks, and and how do we then graduate them from a car loan to a mortgage to a, you know this and that and get financially included?
1: Uh, I love that. But do you um do you find that boards in general that they are keeping up with the times, uh, you know the the emphasis on greater inclusion and equity, or are they kind of lagging?
0: I think it varies by company, but I do think the pandemic and the George Floyd murder were absolute tipping points. Number 1, I think society with the pandemic started to see companies differently. I mean, it was it was the private sector that delivered PPE, created PPE, got vaccines, got distribution of masks going when it wasn't going. That was that was the private sector and I think the I think citizenry started to respect the business. I think trust in business w- went up. I think the George Floyd murder empowered. I think in the George Floyd murder, I think employees, customers, and investors found their voice. They started holding companies to account and uh, and started to understand they have a voice and it's influential. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we're seeing that now that, you know, I think, employees are they are it's a great resignation they're voting with their feet it's not all just work from home it's purpose-driven like they want to affiliate with purpose customers are paying attention to you know the brands they they buy for and the funds you know the esg investor funds flowing in along esg lines is clear evidence that this stuff matters so Your question: Are we getting better? Our uh, companies getting better on DEI? I, I, yes, they're are, they're getting better. Are we on a journey? Absolutely, one that will will never end.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: and it's and it's more than just talk, and it's more than just commitment. I mean, we just have some structural issues in this country that we we're going to have to deal with.
1: I, I agree with you. I think we do have to stay vigilant, but I am optimistic that we're moving in the right direction. I think that. Um, some brands do a better job than others, and fortunately, I've had a number of great brands on represented on here, like p and done some really cool stuff around products and yes. going right after the the uh, social justice stuff, particularly in George Floyd aftermath of his and Breonna Taylor's death.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was interviewing for a board yesterday, in fact, uh-huh. and I thought to myself, so you know, I'm, I'm interviewing for a board and. And I, again, I have this purpose-driven, mission-driven lens, and I'm not really seeing it in this company. Like, I just, you know, it's my first interview with the company. I'm not really getting it. It doesn't feel like a, a company, I a mean, great company, but not necessarily, you know, I can't pull the purpose out real quick, you know? And so I asked the question, and then they immediately launch into what they're doing for the circular economy and how they're benefiting, yeah. um, you know, with accessibility of technology. And I was thinking to myself after I got off the call, I'm like, you know, I bet three years ago that they wouldn't have been able to pivot right to that awareness, that answer that. And it, it just says, yeah. yeah, companies are acutely aware of, of their yeah. purpose.
1: And I think citizens are more aware that their voice matters and they have, they have a voice and they should use it. So I do think that there is a greater sophistication or awareness of the average consumer about these issues. And they speak up, they use their buying power. And it's, I don't think, you know, the concept of greenwashing and, and signaling, I think it's harder and harder to get away with that. If a brand doesn't really want to do the work and go there.
0: No question. I mean, and in the LGBT space, we call it pink washing. Yeah. You, if you say it and don't do it you're in trouble these days, yeah. that, that, that say do gap is monitored a lot, I think. And, you know, that's social media transparency around brands. Yeah. You can't get a, you can't get away with saying and not doing.
1: So, so as we look forward and continue to try and help, you know, build a better tomorrow and bring folks together, how to bridge. I want to believe that sports is one way to do that. I think music is one way to do that. But I wonder if, if you share, if you have any thoughts on how to actively, not obnoxiously, but just actively for our average listener, how to go about being part of that bridging or that solution that we need to get back together.
0: I think it's recognizing the platform that you have and thinking hard about it. People think you need some big fancy job to have a platform and you don't, you have one, you have one right now. You just don't think about it. I I think back to the days when I played basketball at Purdue, what a platform to transform the lives of little girls. And, you know, did I, did I recognize that? No, I was too busy trying to hit the shot. Yeah. I mean, I just trying to be successful, I wasn't trying to, I didn't appreciate the significance of the opportunity that I had. Uh I was just trying to be successful. It's one thing my dad used to tell me all the time. And he used to say, girl, you've been given gifts, use them. And tomorrow... Just know that you're going to fall on your face. So don't get too full of yourself. I got the second part, which, which yeah. meant be humble. But what he meant by the first part was you're going to be successful. I expect that of you. Yeah. But if you don't do things with that success to be significant, to do things that matter, then the success is not worthwhile and it's not successful. I think everybody in their daily lives, whether as an employee, as a, you buy you buy things, I know you buy things, you know, as an investor, if you're investing. You have a platform and how you choose to use it is up to you. And I think people oftentimes think too small. They just think too small about the platform that they have. At EY, I'll never forget. It was a pivotal point for me. I went out to dinner one night with a friend and she looked, and this is, I'm, you know, busy, I'm mentoring, I'm trying to mentor individual women, plus do my job. And she looked across the the table from me at a restaurant and goes, you know, you don't do enough for women. I'm like, what? What? Like, how can you say I don't do enough for women? I can't do any. I'm like, I got angry about it. And then I went home that night and I'm like, you know what? I get it. I know what she meant. I was a global executive all over the world dealing with governments. And I'm mentoring individual women. I could change the world for women if yeah. I put my mind around it. I had the networks. Yeah. And, and so it totally threw me into a different gear. The point being, any, that's an extreme example, but the point being, I was playing small. I I was I was really playing small versus thinking about the impact that I could have if I put my mind to it.
1: When you had that aha moment, then did you start to apply it big time? I I just started to try to change the world for women.
0: And I went through this whole thing. And this is back when Hillary Clinton was running for president her first time and, you know, changed the whole dialogue from women as victims to women as economic engines of change. Mm-hmm. Coming mm-hmm. out of the global financial crisis, 08, 09, I don't know if you remember, but it was all, you know, the global financial, all these men sort of led us off the financial cliff.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who mm-hmm. was behind the scenes trying to get us to crawl back? It was women. And yeah. And what if you looked at the potential in women entrepreneurs around the world as economic engines, there was such GDP opportunity around the world. Mm-hmm. And so really work to change that attitude of women as victims to yeah. women are in economic engines that can lead us out of this global financial crisis. So as well
1: as this, climate change and other things. I mean, it, there's so much scientific data that points to that women just yeah. have it. And on the
0: LGBT industry. issue, hey, the moment I came out, the moment I came out at 52 years of age, I realized that I had been given the gift of a platform yeah. to drive change around the world. I had no idea by coming out that that was going to happen, but I quickly realized I had an obligation to, to, to yeah. try to change.
1: Yeah. I, I love that reference in your, um, in your bio, I think, about going from living in black and white to full color. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, Beth. It's been so great to have you. I, I'd love to have you come back. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but I want to just maybe close. Let you have the mic. Last words of advice, tips to either jaded professionals who've been exited or young kids who are starting out their careers. Well, I would. I would
0: just say um, it's similar to my coming out message, which was you're valuable because of your difference, not in spite of your difference. And what makes you valuable is all of your differences. And that message came from me as I I didn't come out to wave my hand and go, Hey, I'm gay. I can't, my decision to come out was the, my message was about, look, yeah, I'm gay. You know, that's, that is what it is. I'm not entirely comfortable with it, or I wasn't at the time, but, but the point to these gay teenagers who the society, society rejects and makes think lesser of it. It's like, you are valuable because of your difference. I, I at EY, I joined a very male dominated profession, extrovert dominated profession. I'm an introvert, Republican dominated profession. I'm a Democrat. You know, like I was different in so many ways at EY, and they embraced me. I was always over here in left field when everybody else was in right field. I just, I probably drove them nuts, but (laughs) they knew that that was my value. I was going to see the exact same problem from a very different perspective and bring a whole different approach to it and so my message to the to the young people is just you know society is always going to make you feel a little bit lesser um let them Uh, just know that you're valuable because of your difference and you need to bring your difference to the table don't try to be like the majority norm be you because that what that's what makes you valuable and over time if you just try to be someone else you're not you're not going to be you're not going to achieve your full potential
1: let them be them and you be you well said. <laughs> Beth Brooke, thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, Beth is a global professional services executive, a board member, humanitarian, and a great jock as well. So Beth, please come back.
0: Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at TUsnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.